Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. We've all heard the classic setup for an even more classic joke. A guy walks into a bar and some sort of grown-worthy, play-on-word punniness occurs. Sometimes it's a mushroom who claims that he's a fun guy. Other iterations have said that three vampires walk in and order pints of blood and then one of plasma, which the bartender translates into two bloods and a blood light. My personal favorite version of the joke is this. A rabbi, a priest, and a Lutheran minister walk into a bar. The bartender looks up and says, is this some kind of joke? Cue begrudging laughter here. It's a classic, if cringeworthy, way to get a laugh out of people. And when it comes to the case of Brian Schaefer, this is a story that when the very basic elements are considered, it reads like a bad slapstick joke. A guy walks into a bar, but never walks out. Paired with the events of Brian Schaefer walking into a bar on March 31st, 2006, but then never walks out in the early morning hours of April Fool's Day, and the propensity for this situation seeming like some awful punchline-less joke increases tenfold. But it's when you get beyond the basics, when you get into the nitty-gritty and the puzzling details that led up to and made up what was supposed to be a pre-spring break Friday night out at the bars for some 20-somethings, that's when you realize that what happened to Brian Schaefer is no joke. Because what it is, is a mystery that, when examined closely, is as baffling as it is terrifying. Because if a guy walks into a bar and never walks out, is never seen again, and is never heard from again, then what in the world happened to him? Let's get ready to get dark as hell. Seven years old, six foot two, dark haired and gifted with an easy smile, Brian Schaefer was, by all appearances, a good Midwestern guy with a bright future ahead of him. Brian had been born in Ohio, in the city of Pickerington, and he'd stayed an Ohio boy through and through. So much so that after he graduated from high school and finished the gap year that he took following, he headed straight for that classic. Ohio Institution, the Ohio State University. By 2006, Brian had been at OSU since 1999. During his time as an undergrad, he had majored in microbiology and gotten his minor in genetics by the time that graduation rolled around. The combination of his academic pursuits while in college made it clear that he had medical school on his mind next. Speaking on the Comeback podcast, Brian's cousin Dan shared that even though Brian had, quote, never been the top of his class in high school, 
When he found something he was passionate about, he stuck with it. Brian was a fastidious student, always working his hardest. And while he remained pretty middle of the road when it came to his grades, it was clear that he was determined to get that MD. Sources, though, have offered a different perspective about why Brian was so determined to become a doctor. While medicine seemed to be Brian's dream on paper, over the years, he had often told friends, jokingly or not, that he wanted to become a musician someday. He had played guitar in high school and was even part of a band during his teenage years, but he knew it was a long shot to make it big in music. So he put the idea of a music career on the back burner. That's not to say that he put music in the back of his mind though, because no, Brian was still an avid music fan, particularly of the Margaritaville vibes and Pearl Jam-esque tunes. Brian wrote about his ideal future in his MySpace bio, saying that, quote, I want to own an island someday, or at least a beach, so I can listen to Buffett all day and drink margaritas with my senorita. Of his devotion to Pearl Jam specifically, he channeled that through the only tattoo that he had on his body, a stick figure logo from the cover artwork for Pearl Jam's song, Alive. Brian's love of music seemed, at least, to run somewhat deeper than his love of medicine. In that same MySpace bio, he admitted that, quote, I really love music, and this whole doctor thing is really just a job, only temporary, until I get my band together and put out a record. It's bold to say that pursuing medicine and the grueling demands that lead up to getting your medical degree was just a temporary job. Whether Brian was really joking or not when making that statement and others like it is something that still remains up for debate. However, those close to him say that at the end of it all, Brian did have personal reasons for pursuing medicine. He said to have chosen medicine as his career path in order to make his parents proud and particularly his mother, Renee, who was a nurse. Brian's relationship with his mother, Renee, was another thing in his life that he clearly valued highly. The Schaefer family was made up of Mother Renee, Father Randall, who went by Randy, Brian, and his younger brother, Derek. It was Brian's relationship with Renee, though, that earned him the title of Mama's Boy to those who knew him. He even wrote about her on his MySpace page. On his profile, Brian had put his mother as his only hero, saying, quote, she will always inspire me to do my best and I don't want to let her down. He also described her as, quote, the greatest, most wonderful person in the world. The words might have meant even more when taken into context. Renee had been diagnosed with a rare blood cancer, myelodia dysplasia. It's unclear when exactly Renee was first diagnosed, but it has been reported that Brian and the other Schaefer men were heartbroken with how quickly the cancer spread. On March 6, 2006, at 51 years old, Renee Schaefer passed away at the Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital in Columbus following her cancer battle. After Renee's death, Brian's friends said that he appeared on the outside to be handling his mother's death okay, but many close to him knew that he really was struggling with his grief. For a son who had been described as a mama's boy, 
it was clear to his inner circle that Renee's death was very hard for him. It's April Johnston reported in the Columbus Monthly quote, Renee was, Brian's friends say, his confidant and his hero. She was also the center of the Schaefer universe and losing her alternately unraveled tight family ties and thrust the men closer together. The Schaefer men did band together with Brian's brother Derek recalling that quote, we had become closer after mom died. He would just call and ask how I was doing. It must have been some comfort to Renee to know that she wouldn't be leaving her boys all alone though, as there were others who supported Randy, Brian, and Derek as well. In Renee's obituary, enlisting the family that she left behind, it also mentioned, quote, two dear friends, one of them being a woman named Alexis Wagner, who was Brian's girlfriend at the time. Alexis was a fellow second year student at the OSU Medical School, and she had met Brian through some of the classes that they shared. Photos of the two together show a good-looking couple that seemed to share an easygoing, fun-loving relationship with each other. Alexis, for one, shared that to her, Brian was, quote, brilliant, handsome, sweet, and loyal and caring on her own MySpace page. All that said, however, we do need to have a word about Alexis and Brian's relationship, even here at the top of the episode. During the first week of April, the two were planning to take a trip to Miami, a spring break trip that Renee had actually purchased for the two of them as a gift during her last Christmas. For the relaxation and tropics-loving Brian, seemed like the perfect spring break. Many outlets have reported since then that heading into the trip, Alexis, quote, expected a marriage proposal to be made. Since 2006, though, certain components of the relationship that Alexis and Brian shared have come to light and come to be questioned. Specifically, I'm talking about the length of their relationship. For several years, the narrative was that Brian and Alexis had been dating for a year, if not more than a year, which made the possibility of a proposal somewhat plausible. However, in conducting my research for Brian's case, there was a detail that kept cropping up and contradicting a major part of Brian and Alexis's relationship. Namely, that the two hadn't been dating for a year or even half of one. Many more accounts in the Brian Schaefer realm of the internet detectives and think pieces that have since come out to state that Brian and Alexis have been together for a year have since been refuted because it seems that Brian and Alexis had actually only been dating for five months. This minute detail in the grand scheme perspective of the case is admittedly exactly that, minute. But I think such a deviation in the timeline of their relationship is something that does need to be considered carefully because it forces us to examine the events leading up to Brian's disappearance much more critically as well. In the years that have gone by since Brian vanished, I think it's clear to see now that portions of the narrative surrounding his story were a bit skewed toward the positive as is apt to happen since family and friends found in these awful scenarios always want to present missing or murdered individuals in the best light. And in this case, I think this rumor of a proposal was an instance of inherently innocent romanticizing. 
When you look at aspects of this case more critically, and specifically in the three weeks leading up to Brian's disappearance, in my own opinion, I think it's clear that Brian had no intention of proposing during the spring break trip. Let's look at things in a more logical frame, as opposed to an emotional appeal sort of frame. For one, Brian and Alexis were only in their second year of medical school, with years more still of internships, residencies, and not having a clue where they might be matched upon their graduation to consider and contend with. Brian particularly might have been more focused on his education because he put in a lot of effort to keep his grades up. His grades have since been described as both, quote, decent and, quote, nothing spectacular. But it has been said that Brian really stressed over and struggled with keeping his grades on the right side of averageness. At 27, too, Brian still might not have been ready to settle down. Certainly, it's been suggested that Brian enjoyed going out and meeting people, and he was no stranger when it came to flirting with women. There has been local gossip over the years that suggests Brian may not have been as serious about his relationship as Alexis was, and other rumors still have whispered that the relationship between Alexis and Brian was, quote, rocky, and that Brian might not have been completely faithful. Brian's grief over losing his mother is something that has to be considered as well. He really did seem to be suffering, something that became much clearer to his loved ones on the day of Renee's funeral. The morning of the funeral, Brian was nowhere to be found, to the point that the service was running over an hour late because it hadn't started, because no one could find him. As was later reported, eventually Brian and Alexis showed up together after over an hour had passed, with Brian simply claiming that his lateness was due to him oversleeping. It was certainly a strange instance that alerted friends and family that Brian might not have been handling his grief as healthily as it had initially seemed. Alexis also shared that not long after the funeral, Brian, quote, told her she should move on and find someone else who could make her happy because he was in a dark place after Renee's death. In addition to the family's grief, there seemed to be points of contention rising in the midst of their loss as well. Renee had apparently been supporting Brian during school and was said to have paid for his living expenses in addition to helping him out with his loans too. When Renee's life insurance policy was cashed out following her death, allegedly Brian's younger brother, Derek, received $20,000 from the plan while Brian didn't get anything. Some have speculated that this was due to either the negative effect inheriting such a pile of money would have had on his student loan repayment plans, or because his mother supposedly wrote him a check for $30,000 before she died that was intended to be his part of the inheritance. However, if such a check existed, it was reportedly never cashed before Brian disappeared. While it's clear that Brian and his mother were close, it appears that father and son were in a rough spot of their own relationship, following Renee's death. Though the family's private investigator, Don Corbett, demurred during an interview from stating explicitly what led to the two having a bit of a falling out, the True Crime Garage team, who are Columbus locals with extensive connections to the law enforcement in the area, claimed during their coverage of Brian's case that Brian was upset with Randy because he had found out that his father had been romantically seeing another woman prior to Renee's death. All of this to say, 
It's crucial to look at cases like these with a critical eye because it's clear that there's always more happening and lurking underneath the surface. Relationships, especially in this case, are able to shed more light on where Brian was in his life, since he himself is unable to tell us in his own words. There's another relationship that Brian had that needs to be touched upon here. And that's the one that he shared with his former roommate and friend, William Florence, who went by the name Clint. Clint and Brian had been friends for several years by 2006. They'd lived together with another friend for a period of time, worked together at JCPenney on the side, and they were, by Clint's description, typical drinking buddies who liked to go out and have a good time. However, these good time guys hit a snag in their friendship on March 17th, 2006, St. Patrick's Day of that year. Not many details about what occurred that night have ever been made public, but at some point during their night celebrating St. Patty, the two men got into a fight and their night, quote, ended badly. The fight was said to have been so tense that the two of them didn't speak for several days, if not almost two weeks. Police later saw that there had been almost no texts or phone calls made between the two after their fight and that their first communication came on the morning of March 31st, when Clint wrote on Brian's MySpace profile in a manner that had suggested that the two had made up offline. The message is one that, again, begs us to look more carefully beyond the narrative presented by family and friends in the days and weeks following Brian's disappearance. Because that morning, before the two former roommates connected for a night out to celebrate the beginning of spring break, Clint declared on Brian's MySpace, quote, Ladies, don't believe a word this man says. He loves the ass tags. The last night that Brian Schaefer was seen alive started like this. It was Friday, March 31st, 2006, 25 days after Brian's mother had been buried. That Monday, he and Alexis had plans to fly to Miami, Florida to kick off their spring break, a last gift from Renee. Leading up to this Friday, Brian had been studying nonstop, pulling all-nighters most of the week in order to get through a series of exams the medical student had to tackle before spring break. It was later that night during a dinner with his father, Randy, at a local steakhouse, Randy thought to himself how odd it was that Brian was insisting to go out with his friend Clint when his son's exhaustion was clear in his behavior and evident on his face. However, during a later interview with Dateline, Randy acknowledged that perhaps Brian was trying to simply do it all that day. He shared that, quote, Brian was concerned about me. He was gonna go out drinking that night earlier, and then he told them, guys, I have to be there for my dad, you know. So, First on Brian's Friday agenda that evening was dinner with his father. Brian had tentative plans to meet up with his younger brother, Derek, as well, but those never came to fruition. According to Derek, quote, we were trying to meet up. I'd been to a comedy club in Columbus, but it was getting late. Morin, my girlfriend, and I headed back to where I lived and met with friends at a local bar instead. The brothers discussed this change of plans over the phone sometime after 10 p.m., and that phone call was the last time that Derek heard from his older brother. 
At 9 p.m., regardless of any post-exam exhaustion, Brian and Clint Florence began their night at a local campus watering hole called the Ugly Tuna Saluna. The Ugly Tuna, as locals called it, was located in the campus gateway, a trendy mix of restaurants and bars that was both, quote, the city and Ohio State's upscale answer to the increasingly dangerous and deteriorating south end of campus, according to a Columbus Monthly report. Other bars surrounding the tuna had such names like the Sloppy Donkey, Mad Mex, and Lucky Stout House. So the boys had their pick of various bars to hop from, which is precisely what they did. A two-man bar crawl from the Gateway area to the Arena District and then to the Short North area. As Clint later described it during a Dateline interview, their pattern of attack was always the same whenever they went out. Quote, sit down, open a tab, and then, you know, had three, four, five shots of liquor. At 9.56 p.m., just under an hour into his night out on the town, Brian had a phone call with Alexis. That weekend, just before their trip, Alexis was in Toledo with her family. The family dog, Ellie, was apparently in poor health, so she claimed that she'd gone back to her hometown to spend some time with her pup before she and Brian went away for their trip. Brian apparently called the check-in, claimed that he was going to tell all of his friends about how wonderful she was, told her he loved her, and hung up. It would be the last time that Alexis would speak to her boyfriend. Between 10 p.m. and 12 a.m., Brian and Clint bar hopped through a series of bars, including Brothers Bar and Red Star. At each stop, as Clint described it, the two would have at least two shots and then move on to the next stop. At around 12 a.m., the two guys met up with Clint's friend, Meredith Reed, a fellow medical student who was also at the Red Star. Upon the two-sum becoming a three-sum, Meredith offered to drive everyone back to the Ugly Tuna Saluna, where Clint and Brian had first started their evening. It was at 1.15 a.m. in the early hours of Saturday, April 1st, that Brian, Clint, and Meredith were seen on surveillance cameras riding the escalator up to the second floor of the gateway where the Ugly Tuna was located. At the time, Brian was facing away from the camera as they rode the escalator. He was leaning against the railing a step or two above Clint and Meredith. In the video, Brian is seen wearing jeans, a dark green polo shirt, and a white long sleeve t-shirt underneath the polo. The way that the ugly tuna was set up is that, as the captain from True Crime Garage described it, is that the bar itself was a plain kind of box shaped room. There's one entrance for patrons, which can only be accessed by going up the escalator where surveillance cameras can see everyone coming and going. Once you arrive at the top of the escalator to enter the ugly tuna, you would turn right. That entrance at the top of the escalator is, again, the only public way to access the ugly tuna. We'll get into more of the tuna setup in a bit, but that's the important thing to know right now. The escalator provides the only public way to access the bar. On April 10th, 2006, Clint sat down for an interview with MSNBC and shared his account of what took place inside the ugly tuna. Quote, we see some students of mine. We sat down next to them. It was Meredith to my right, then me, then the two girls, and then Brian was doing his usual thing. And he was talking to those two girls. And I go, 
yeah, Brian, stick around. He had a tendency to walk away. The students of mine that Clint is referring to are two students in the class that he was a TA for, a girl named Brighton Zacco and another named Amber Ruik. At 1.55 a.m., Brian is seen on camera again, the same camera that caught him riding the escalator up to the Ugly Tuna at 1.15. He's seen talking to Brighton in a small alcove off to the side of the front door of the bar, and Amber is nearby as well. While we still don't know down to the last detail what all had happened inside the tuna between 115 and 155, Brighton spoke with the host of the Comeback podcast in 2018 and shared what she remembered from the evening that she met Brian Schaefer. Despite having had a number of shots throughout the night, Brighton said that Brian only seemed, quote, buzzed, not drunk, but that he was very flirtatious. Brighton was interested in him and agreed to give him her number, which she put into his phone. Some reports have claimed that Brian was aggressively pursuing both Brighton and Amber, to the point that he kissed one of them on the neck, despite having a girlfriend. What's interesting about these reports is the fact that in the same 2018 interview, Brighton revealed that at one point inside the bar, Clint and Brian had been having a fight. Brighton claimed that it was too loud inside to hear what exactly it was about, but Sergeant John Hurst of the Columbus PD, who became one of the lead investigators on the case, would go on to confirm that, quote, Clint and Brian had a verbal altercation inside the bar. Again, we don't know what took place inside the bar between 115 and 155, but now we know that, one, Brian, Clint, and Meredith allegedly sat down next to Brighton, Zacco, and Amber Ruik, two of the students Clint is a TA for, as soon as they got into the bar. Two, at some point, Brian and Clint get into an argument. And three, at 1.55 a.m., Brian is seen outside of the bar speaking with Brighton and Amber. I also want to go back to Clint for a second because his account of events that he shared with MSNBC actually continued with this commentary. Quote, probably 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later, I turned to say, Meredith, let's go. It was closing time, 2.10, 2 a.m., and Brian was nowhere to be seen. Now, time means nothing to someone who has had a few drinks in them, but it needs to be pointed out. If the group arrived at 1.15 a.m., and as we can confirm with the videotape, and as a reasonable assumption, it sounds like they sat down next to Brighton and Amber within five or 10 minutes of getting into the bar which would bring us to around 1.20 or 1.25 a.m. If Clint's account is true, then it would be by 1.35 or 1.40 a.m., the supposed 10 or 15 minutes later, that he turned and told Meredith that he wanted to leave. Not 2 a.m. That's a rather solid chunk of time missing from Clint's version of events. And you have to wonder if it's the fight that he had with Brian that he was leaving out, and some sort of means of self-preservation. His version is also inaccurate because we know for a fact that at 1.55 a.m., Brian is outside of the bar speaking with Brighton and Amber, not missing at 1.35 or 1.40. I think it's important again to bring up the idea of romanticizing narratives or even straight up whitewashing them when it comes to cases of missing or murdered people. 
All people are imperfect, even those who fall victim to a crime. But the whitewashing that is apt to happen in some of these cases runs the risk of misrepresenting the full truth of events when the simple truth, even if it's uncomfortable or embarrassing, is what matters most. Maybe Brian was flirting with girls who weren't Alexis, flirting in a way that stepped over boundaries and lines that someone in a relationship shouldn't. Maybe he and Clint got in an argument about that so soon after they had already had a fight during another night out. We really can't say what all happened because for whatever reason, some of the key players there that night either can't remember or haven't publicly shared what happened. What's clear here is that somewhere throughout the night, Brian left Clint and Meredith, whether he did so purposely to continue chatting and flirting with Clint's students or to get away from Clint following their argument, or whether it was by sheer drunken wandering, that's yet to be determined. 1.57 a.m. though, is the last time that Brian Schaefer is seen on camera as he finishes a conversation and says his goodbyes to Brighton and Amber. He turns to his right and then walks off screen. According to Clint, he claims that Brian went back into the bar at that point and that he told Brian that he and Meredith were ready to leave. Brian allegedly made a comment about wanting to quote, talk to the band that had been playing that night and walked off. Though at that point, the bar would have been making it clear that it was last call since they would begin to close at 2 a.m. Clint says that at this point, he and Meredith simply lost track of Brian. At 2 a.m., the bar was in full swing of shooing patrons out the door with all of the finesse of wrangling cats, no doubt, and otherwise the staff was going through their paces of closing up for the evening. Clint has since claimed that he and Meredith spent several minutes looking for Brian. They called his cell phone, looked around the bar for him, and allegedly even went into the bathroom to see if he was in there, but all to no avail. At 2.01 a.m., Meredith called Brian's phone after their attempts of searching for him, and that call went straight to voicemail. She left a brief message saying, quote, where are you? Where the hell are you? Minutes later, the two are seen on the same surveillance camera going down the escalator that they had ridden in the opposite direction less than an hour beforehand. Clint and Meredith allegedly waited outside the gateway for a few minutes to see if Brian would appear, but by 2.09, the two were caught on camera heading into the garage where Meredith had parked her car. Clint was house-sitting for a professor that weekend and wanted to get back, and they both probably figured that, given Brian's apartment was only six blocks away, that he had probably done a classic Brian move, and Irish exited before walking home by himself. But what they didn't know was that somewhere between 1.55 a.m. and 2.09, Brian Schaefer had for all appearances, vanished. The rest of the weekend was quiet, both literally and figuratively. Later on that Saturday, April 1st at 11 a.m., Clint left a voicemail on Brian's phone. The phone was still only going straight to voicemail as it had the night before. It was a brief message since Clint simply just wanted to check in. All he said was, quote, hey, lost you last night, and then hung up. He didn't give it much of a second thought. Alexis also tried to call Brian, but she was equally unsuccessful. 
She figured that he was probably just sleeping off a hangover that he might have accumulated and decided that she'd call again later. Brian had allegedly made some tentative plans with other friends to have them over to his apartment on that Saturday. But when these friends never got a concrete invitation for a time to come over, they assumed that it had just been more casual than Brian had let on. And they didn't think much of it either. The next day, Sunday, April 2nd, was the day before Brian and Alexis's trip to Miami. Alexis had called on and off throughout the day, and her mind had changed from, quote, always oh, sleeping it off to, oh, I guess he's just got his phone turned off entirely. She admitted to an interview on October 1st with Dispatch that, quote, I was overwhelmed by this horrible feeling that something had happened. Then I was just like, calm down. You worry way too much. She had a right to be worried, though. When she got back to Columbus after the last few days that she had spent in Toledo, she arrived at Brian's apartment and saw that nothing was amiss. His car was still parked outside in its regular spot. His apartment seemed completely normal. And even the glasses that he occasionally wore were left in their typical location on his bedside table. Other important day-to-day -day items, though, weren't there. Brian had had his wallet, keys, and phone all on him when he had gone out on that Friday night. As they had their flight to Miami the next day, Alexis decided that she'd just hang out at Brian's apartment, and then she even slept there without him, simply waiting for him to come back so that they could get ready for their trip together on the Monday morning. Monday morning came, and no Brian. The time of their deflating, departing flight came, the flight left, and still no Brian. It was when the departure time passed. That was when Alexis, and now Randy, Brian's father made their way to police. Because by this point, it was clear that something was horribly, horribly wrong. The police, for their credit, wasted little time in recognizing Brian's disappearance for what it was. The first place that the Columbus Police Department investigated was, to no surprise to anyone, the last place that Brian had been seen, the Ugly Tuna Saluna, which happened to be located in an area surrounded by surveillance cameras. A fun fact about Columbus, Ohio, at least in 2006, Columbus was the city with the most surveillance cameras in all of Ohio. Columbus had more closed circuit cameras than Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Toledo combined. Even if a camera inside of the gateway hadn't caught sight of Brian after 1.57 a.m., the police were confident that any number of the cameras located throughout the heavily camera-laden area might have caught a glimpse of him through their lens. It's time now to revisit the Ugly Tuna Saluna and give you a better idea of the tuna's layout. For all of the cities that I've lived in since 2016, I've also experienced my own fair share of bars and bistros throughout those same cities. So let me give you some visuals about the setup of the Ugly Tuna. For those well-versed with the Southie neighborhood of Boston, I would liken the layout of the Ugly Tuna to that of Coppersmith, patio and all, since the tuna itself did have a small outdoor patio. For anyone familiar with Philadelphia's nightlife, 
I might say that Brewcraft near Broad Street has similar vibes and a similar setup. And of course, for anyone in Providence, Hot Club is probably the closest thing to the ugly tuna aesthetic that I can imagine. As we've already discussed, the main entrance to the Ugly Tuna was on the second floor of the building that it was housed in, which you can only get to by taking the escalator up to it. Once you reach the top of the escalator, you turn right and are immediately greeted with the entrance. Adjacent to the bar itself, which is a pretty simple square-shaped space, there's a small outdoor patio that overlooks a courtyard and further away, a parking garage for the area. Now, I've been stressing the fact that the only way the public can access or exit the bar is through the entrance at the top of the escalator. But that's the public route. Like most bars and restaurants, the Ugly Tuna also had a service entrance that was used by the staff and employees and the band when live music was being played. Where things get confusing in this part of the story is that given that this month actually marks 15 years since Brian was last seen, some people have conflated the servant's entrance with an emergency exit and vice versa. As far as I can tell and have been able to untangle these threads, there is the main entrance to the building at the bottom of the escalator. There is the main entrance to the bar at the top on the second floor. And then there is the long hallway that has been designated the staff entrance, which perhaps does double as an emergency exit that led out to the construction going on behind the bar at the time. A Dateline report may have contributed to this confusion because they mention an emergency exit on the first floor. But that emergency exit is one, obviously not on the second floor of the Ugly Tuna, and two, was actually considered to, quote, belong to the Mad Mex restaurant bar next door and led into an alleyway. This exit, unfortunately, did not have a surveillance camera on it. This is a very long-winded way of saying that. For the sake of simplicity, I'm going to be calling this secondary exit the staff entrance. The staff entrance, as the True Crime Garage guys laid out from their own experiences in going to the Ugly Tuna themselves, was basically a long hallway that led to an exit that was connected to a construction site that was doing work on the back of the building at the time. This exit had a surveillance camera on it, but police have since said that particular surveillance camera did not capture any video of Brian exiting through the staff entrance. The staff entrance, as I said, led out to, into some construction going on. To make it clear, this wasn't some massive area of dug up concrete filled with heavy machinery or anything like that. All of the major work had been finished quite a while prior to this night in question. What was going on was mainly light construction, things like drywalling being done. As the Columbus Monthly reported, quote, there weren't any deep pits or freshly poured concrete areas to fall into. It was challenging to walk through, but not deadly. While police initially wondered if Brian had 
somehow found his way out to the construction area and injured himself, they also realized that it was highly improbable that Brian would have sustained some sort of injury in the construction area that would have made it impossible to see him or at least find him. When their initial search of the tuna turned up nothing by means of finding a clue about where Brian had gone, the police turned their attention to the only holdout that they really had, the surveillance cameras. Led by Detective Andre Edwards, one of the lead investigators at the time, investigators poured over the tapes of the partygoers and the bar hoppers from that March night, rewinding, fast forwarding, watching frame by carefully studied, studied frame. The police eventually were able to identify an account for every person seen going into the bar that night and every person leaving, all except for Brian. Of course, human nature and technology are not infallible. Despite all of their painstaking reviews of the tapes, maybe the police missed Brian on camera. Maybe the cameras missed Brian. It was reported that one of the cameras was known to pan the area constantly, while the other was only operated manually. Detective Edwards, though, remains resolute. In speaking with Michelle Sullivan of the Columbus Monthly, he has since maintained that, quote, I can say with 100% certainty that Brian Schaefer did not go back down that escalator. But if Brian never did go down the escalator, then where did he go? Had he jumped from the bar's patio down to the courtyard? Had he somehow found his way up onto the roof? All of these theories only added more questions, questions that nobody seemed able to answer. And the simple fact remained that in Ohio's most surveyed city, Brian Schaefer had somehow managed to escape any camera catching sight of him after 1.57 a.m. that April night. Police determined after their initial investigation at the Ugly Tuna Saluna that there was no evidence that foul play had befallen Brian at the bar that night, despite there also being no hard proof that Brian had ever left the bar that night. And so they turned their investigation outwards. Police began to investigate nearby restaurants and bars with the assistance of the volume of surveillance cameras in the surrounding bars, but none of the other establishment's cameras had caught sight of Brian. Police dogs, both of the search variety as well as cadaver dogs, were brought in, but they didn't hit on anything exceptionally concrete about where Brian might have been. Randy even brought the family dogs to search the area, thinking that they might more easily pick up on Brian's familiar scent. Some of the variously trained dogs seemed interested in a particular patch of the alleyway that led to a nearby Wendy's on the side of the bar and parts of the construction site, but the attention any of the dogs paid to these spots wasn't as strong as police would have liked, and it was believed that the rainstorm that had blown through the previous days may have simply confused the dogs. Despite reporting Brian missing on the Monday after, it was realized that he was missing, Friends and family still searched all of the dumpsters in the area that they could find, but to no avail. A grid search of the local landfill on April 19th similarly turned up nothing.
About 50 Columbus police officers ended up going from door to door in the surrounding area, asking locals if they had seen Brian. The members of Rock House, the band that had been playing that night, said that they didn't remember anyone looking like Brian coming up and speaking to them towards the end of the night. Flyers of Brian's face were posted everywhere throughout the campus. Clint and Meredith maintained that they had lost track of Brian after he allegedly re-entered the bar. Homeless shelters and hospitals were contacted and abandoned buildings were searched through. Polygraph tests were administered to almost all of Brian's loved ones and almost everyone that he had been with that night. Brighton Zacco and Amber Ruick later came forward to say that they had never been asked to take a test and even though Randy wasn't there that night, he volunteered and passed. Meredith Reed later reported that she had passed her own lie detector test. Clint Florence, however, when the investigators approached him, refused to take not only one test, but two. And we'll come back to that. Not only in the days after of his disappearance was Brian's car searched, but so too was Meredith's car and Clint's. The police even did a search of the professor's house that Clint was staying at, and they searched that professor's car as well. No sign of Brian was found anywhere. Searches of the nearby Olentangy River were conducted, but police were confident that if Brian had somehow found his way there, he would have already been found due to the fact that the river was incredibly shallow. Where it ran throughout the city, the water only went to about two or three feet deep. Police also noted that the Olentangy was not on the way to Brian's apartment, and he would have had to make a noticeable detour to get to the area where the river was. In April, investigator John Hurst spoke with Rita Cosby of MSNBC, and she commented on a previous incident where Brian had taken off for a few days. From the interview, Rita said, quote, what I found so interesting, this guy Brian suddenly disappeared, and it was about two years ago, and he took off for about a week. He did call his family during that time, but do you look into maybe something in his background, though, and say, this guy may have a propensity for suddenly taking off? Though Hurst didn't explain anything more about this incident, and we know next to nothing about it more than this, he did say that, quote, We've looked at his background extensively, and he does have the opportunity at times where he does leave the bars and leaves his friends in the bars, but he has never left a situation like this where he hasn't contacted anybody or his friends were not able to locate him. And at this point, there was no word from Brian in any fashion, nothing to give any sort of hint where he might be if he had decided to run off for whatever reason. All of Brian's accounts were monitored, both financial and online. His bank account hadn't been touched. None of his credit cards had been used. Alexis faithfully called Brian's phone every night, though it never rang. She only did so to hear the familiar pattern of the call go straight to the voicemail that played her boyfriend's voice. His MySpace remained silent. On May 11th, Brian's apartment was broken into. The police quickly determined that the burglary had nothing to do with his disappearance. Later in the summer, Alexis finally sold the tickets that the two of them had purchased to see Pearl Jam in Cincinnati, writing on her MySpace that, quote, Someday, I promise I will see them. 
but I think I would be more likely to cry through the whole thing. During the Cincinnati show, Eddie Vedder made a statement about Brian's disappearance and asked everyone to keep an eye out for him or report anything that might be useful to the investigation. No leads were found from this plea. Randy and Derek, meanwhile, spent the rest of the summer wading through the Oland Hanging River on a tip from a psychic that Brian's body was wedged somewhere against a support beam for a bridge over the river. They eventually stopped when their searches turned up nothing. It truly was as if, as Alexis's father put it, quote, God reached down and grabbed him by the nape of the neck. Brian's disappearance was simply put, all consuming and all confounding. And then on September 8th, almost six months after he seemingly vanished into thin air, Brian's phone, as Alexis performed her nightly ritual of calling, rang. The thing that makes Brian's case so baffling is how completely he vanished and how few leads ever came to any sort of fruition, which is also why the Friday, September 8th phone rings are still all the more haunting. Alexis and Randy had been covering Brian's bills in the almost six months since he had vanished, inspired by the idea and the hope that if Brian was still alive, that he would either contact them or return back to his apartment in Columbus. Alexis typically called Brian's phone at 11.30 p.m. every night, a routine that quickly became ritual for her. She told reporters that she, call, that she called as a coping mechanism and because hearing Brian's voice, even as a voicemail, quote, was the best sound in the world. And then on that particular Friday, her call to Brian's phone didn't go straight to voicemail. It rang two, three, four times before launching into Brian's standard voicemail message. She called again and again, and the phone continued to ring. She eventually reached out to the investigators leading Brian's case, as well as Randy, to let them know what was going on. Throughout that night, Alexis, Randy, Brian's younger brother, Derek, and some of the officers on the case were all calling Brian's phone, all with the astonishing result of hearing it ring, even if it did go to voicemail. No one ever picked up, and on September 9th, the next day, the phone had stopped ringing and reverted back to going straight to voicemail. But the next day, September 10th, that phone rang all day. Alexis wrote on her MySpace that, quote, it scared the crap out of me. I had no idea what I would say if a person answered it. Investigators reached out to Singular, the cell phone service that Brian used for his phone, to see what they could make of this. They eventually reported back by saying that though the phone pinged off of a tower 14 miles northwest in the town of Hilliard, Singular believed that the bizarre phone behavior was just that, a bizarre glitch in its behavior. The company's explanation was that they believed the Hilliard Tower merely picked up the call because there was so much activity on the tower that Alexis's phone was connected to 
and the one that Brian's phone previously used. And so that they believe the tower that Alexis's phone was connected to simply bounced her to the Halyard cell tower before it registered that the phone was off or dead. But how then to explain the phone reverting back to voicemail on the 9th and then registering calls again on the 10th? It would be easy to understand a one-off if the phone had simply begun ringing from the 8th into the morning of the 9th. But the fact that the phone began accepting calls again on the 10th seems too strange to chalk up to a simple glitch. But that was the only explanation that anyone could provide for a case that was built upon inexplicable events. It wouldn't be until 2008 that in the midst of yet another Schaefer family death, a new clue about Brian would come to investigators' attention. On September 14, 2008, Randy was cleaning up his yard that had been filled with debris after a massive windstorm rocked through most of central Ohio. As he cleaned, a branch from a nearby tree was blown off by another gust of wind and struck him. His body was found the next day by neighbors. When Randy's obituary was posted online, as most websites do, a virtual guest book was set up so visitors to the page could share condolences for the loss. Family members, friends, and even people who had only become aware of Randy through his search for Brian began sending messages of support to Derek and the rest of the Shaver family. Until one message caught the eye of everyone on the guest book page. One simple message appeared not long after the guest book was posted. And it read, I miss you, Dad. Love, Brian. Parentheses, USVI. Immediately, police began to wonder, was this proof that Brian had, against all odds, gone off to start a new life for himself? At the time, he wouldn't have needed a passport to get to the U.S. Virgin Islands, as it was assumed the USVI initials stood for. And of course, everyone was familiar with Brian's long-held dream of a beachy life of music on an island somewhere. So, had he actually done it? left his stressful life of medical school and his grief behind him? Investigators were able to subpoena the records for the website in order to determine the exact coordinates of where the comment had been posted from. On October 7th, just weeks later, the investigators announced that, instead of the U.S. Virgin Islands, the comment had been written from a public computer in Franklin County, the same county that Columbus was located in. The comment had been nothing more than a cruel joke. It wasn't long after Randy's death and the emergence of the hoax comment that a leading character from that March night came under scrutiny. And that was Clint Florence. According to an article in The Lantern that was published in the spring of 2009, the OSU student newspaper that is, The Lantern, attorney Neil Rosenberg represented Clint who refused at least two requests to take polygraph tests during the investigation of Brian's disappearance. In an email to investigators that was obtained by the Lantern, Rosenberg wrote that, quote, the only burning issue with the authorities remains Clint's refusal to be polygraphed. That decision was based on my recommendation and advice to Clint, not because he is, has been misleading, 
or has something to hide, but he simply has nothing new to tell and was totally upfront and honest with them from the beginning. As far as Clint is concerned, this matter is closed. Rosenberg went one step further though. He claimed in that same email to have knowledge that the police believed Brian was alive. Quote, if Brian is alive, which is what I'm led to believe after speaking with the detective involved, then it is Brian and not Clint Florence who is causing his family pain and hardship. Many people close to the investigation immediately spoke out against both the idea that Brian had walked away from his life and against Clint. Derek, Brian's younger brother and the only surviving member of the Schaefer family, said of Clint and his behavior, quote, I didn't know Clint very well, but I always thought something was off with him. The way he talked about my brother after he went missing, kind of in a negative way. I wouldn't expect that from someone whose friend vanished. As soon as the detective started getting involved, that's when he pretty much had no contact with anybody. I've always thought he definitely knows something, but just won't come forward with it. Speaking to the Lantern, Alexis felt that, though she doesn't think that Brian is alive, because she, quote, can't imagine that he would have just done that. She also thinks Clint, quote, knows something he doesn't want to tell. Her father, Tom, put it a little more poetically. Quote, the gist of my perspective on Clint Florence is that I think that basically all roads to making any progress on the case of Brian Schaefer lead through Clint Florence. The police, meanwhile, remain tight-lipped even to this day. Speaking to Michelle Sullivan of Columbus Monthly, Sergeant Denise Reffitt of the Columbus PD Missing Persons Unit said, quote, we have three different theories, but none that we can discuss. However, one comment made by Detective Andre Edwards, one of the lead investigators, may have shed light on the theory that the police hold closest to their vests and at the uppermost top of their minds. In an interview with Columbus Monthly, Edward shared that, quote, I'm constantly looking for Brian. When I go on vacation now, when I see commercials, if there's anybody that resembles Brian, it catches my eye. It should be noted that the police, when they first began their investigation into what happened to Brian, also maintained that he did not go down the escalator that night. Paired together, what that seems to suggest is that the police believe, in whatever way possible, Brian did leave the bar that night. We just don't know what happened to him afterward. It presents numerous scenarios about what could have happened, what exactly befell Brian Schaefer that first day of April 2006. Did he leave the bar of his own accord, somehow out of view of the cameras and begin the six-walk block back to his apartment, only to get assaulted somewhere along the way? The surrounding area was known to be a bit on the dicey side at the time, certainly somewhere no one, not even a man, would want to walk alone at night. But had Brian presented himself as the perfect victim that night, stumbling home alone from the bars? Or was it his behavior at the bar that drew unwanted attention? Was someone in the crowd of the ugly tuna patrons increasingly infuriated with how Brian was flirting with 
so many women? Or had they known that he had a girlfriend and they took out their anger on him afterwards in some shadowy alley? But these scenarios raise the question that stymies most of the more outlandish theories that surround Brian's case. How in the hell could someone, spur of the moment, so completely get rid of a body and with such precision that nothing has ever been found, even 15 years later? Then, of course, that logical question begs another question. Had he done it? Had Brian Schaefer managed to completely disappear from his life, only to somehow, inexplicably, almost in an impossible way, create a new life for himself? Of course, I'm getting ahead of myself. Because if you think that these are the only questions about Brian Schaefer, then you have another thing coming. Let's dive deeper into some of the hashtag questions that surround Brian Schaefer and his disappearance. Question number one, why did Brian decide to pursue medicine? Was it something that he did feel at least some passion for? Or was it really solely just to make his parents proud? Did he even enjoy what he was doing at that point? What was Brian's gap year like? Did his gap year influence him to the point that he wanted another opportunity to leave the stressors of his life and simply escape? What was the real length of Brian and Alexis's relationship? If the two had only been dating for five months, who perpetuated the stories that Alexis was, quote, expecting a proposal from Brian? Is there any truth to the rumors that Brian wasn't as serious about the relationship as perhaps Alexis was. How was Brian handling his mother's death? Stories have indicated that he didn't have a complete grip on his grief. So is this the truth? What happened the morning of the funeral that made Brian over an hour late to the service? Did he actually oversleep or was something else more worrying going on? Is it true that Brian didn't receive anything from his mother's life insurance policy payout? If so, why precisely didn't he? Similarly, is it true that Brian received a check for $30,000 from his mother before she died? If so, then what happened to the check? Were the Schaefer men really dealing with the falling out between them following Renee's death? Is it true that the cause of the fallout was because Brian had found out Randy was seeing another woman before Renee died? What happened during the St. Patrick's Day fight between Brian and Clint Florence? Why hasn't it ever been made public what the two were fighting about? When exactly did they make up between the 17th and the 31st? What did Clint mean when he posted on Brian's MySpace the morning of March 31st and wrote, quote, don't believe a word this man says, ladies. He loves the ass tags. Why would he post something like that publicly if he knew that Brian was allegedly in a serious relationship with Alexis, a relationship that has been posited that Clint was protective over whenever the two men went out, to the point that it's been suggested the March 17th fight was about Brian behaving disrespectfully of that relationship? 
Did Alexis go to Toledo that weekend to spend time with her family, as she said? Or was it because the relationship that she shared with Brian had become, quote, rocky, as some sources reported? What was the atmosphere like at the dinner that Brian and Randy shared before Brian went out for the night? Did something happen at that dinner that might have upset Brian? Was there anything out of the ordinary happening that night that might have triggered Brian? When Clint and Brian met up with Meredith later in their night, why did they decide to go back to the Ugly Tuna Saluna where the guys had already been that night? When they got to the Ugly Tuna, how quickly did they see Clint's students and how quickly did they sit down with them? What happened to cause Brian and Clint to start having a verbal argument? What was the argument about? Is it true that Brian was aggressively flirtatious with Brighton, Zacco, and Amber Ruick? Was that the impetus for the fight? Was it because of the argument? Is that why Brian possibly decided that he wanted to ditch Clint and Meredith? Why did Clint's version of events seemingly leave out a 20 to 30 minute span of time between when the group arrived at the Ugly Tuna and when they left? What exactly did Brian say to Brighton and Amber when they were standing outside of the entrance of the Ugly Tuna? Did Brian ever go back into the Ugly Tuna after he said goodbye to the two girls? Why has no one been able to corroborate for fact if Brian did actually go back into the bar that night after 1.57 a.m. Did Brian actually tell Clint that he wanted to speak to the band when he allegedly went back into the Ugly Tuna? If he didn't, then why would Clint say that he did? Did Brian ever speak to any of the band members that night? When exactly did Brian's phone turn off or die? If Brian turned it off himself, why did he do so? Exactly how long did Clint and Meredith search for Brian in the bar and then wait outside before heading to the garage? Did Brian leave the Ugly Tuna Saluna alive and of his own free will? If Brian did leave the bar alive that night, how exactly did he get out? Did Brian know about the staff entrance and take that route through the construction site to exit? Or did Brian manage to get out of the bar by going down the escalator and investigators simply missed him? Or was there some other more extreme way that Brian left the bar that hasn't been shared publicly to protect the investigation? Did Brian actually walk towards the nearby Wendy's like the scent tracking dog seemed to suggest, or had they just been confused? If he did, then what was he doing and why was he going to the Wendy's? Was he going to meet up with someone there? Or did something simply happen to Brian on the way to the Wendy's? Was Brian's phone ringing throughout the weekend of September 8th a glitch like Singular has suggested? Or was Brian's phone actually turned on? And if so, who turned on the phone? Was Brian's phone actually out in Hilliard? And if so, how did it get there? Who was the person who wrote the fake message from Brian on Randy's obituary guest book? And why would they do such a thing? Why really did Clint Florence refuse two different times to take a lie detector test? 
Does he know something about what happened to Brian that night? Or is he just following legal advice? Simple as that. Who is the detective that Clint's lawyer mentioned in the email exchange who Rosenberg claims told him police believe that Brian is still alive? What are the three theories that investigators have about what happened to Brian? Why does one of the lead investigators always keep an eye out for Brian, as he told the Columbus Monthly? Does this mean that police have reason to believe that Brian is alive and willingly removed himself from his life? If Brian did decide to walk away from his life, how did he do so in such a seemingly spontaneous way, but still in such an all-consuming manner? If Brian did leave, why? What drove him to walk away? If Brian didn't walk away from his life, then what happened to him after 1.57 a.m. on April 1st, 2006? Did Brian Schaefer die on April 1st, 2006? And if so, then what happened to his body? But if Brian Schaefer didn't die, then where in the hell is he? A guy walks into a bar and never walks out. Or does he? This is the scenario that we're presented with when it comes to the disappearance of Ryan Schaefer. It's in some ways the quintessential disappearance, a disappearance so complete and all-consuming that it really is as if someone vanished out of thin air of a crowded college bar. I think the distinction that needs to be made in this case, though, is that if, and to some this is a big if, if Brian did leave the Ugly Tuna Saluna, then it's not that square box of a drinking establishment that we need to focus on. It's what happened to him afterwards that should be the focus of questions, investigations, and digging. All signs of the magic eight ball seem to point to the suggestion that even if it was through a Houdini sort of way, Brian Schaefer seems to have made it out of the ugly tuna that night. Whether it was through some glitch of the surveillance cameras, the fallibility of the human eye that didn't catch him actually making it down the escalator, or if he did somehow finagle his way through a secondary exit, it stands to reason that Brian, perhaps defying reason to some, left the ugly tuna saluna. His body has not been discovered hidden away in some crawl space or hollow wall. His bones were not poured over with concrete. His remains have not been found. But so too then, neither has Brian Schaefer alive and breathing. One wants to believe that Brian made it out of the bar that night alive. Hell, I want to believe that Brian Schaefer made it out of the bar that night. But it's without knowing what happened to him after that. That's what leaves this version of an intimately tragic guy walks into a bar joke without a punchline and with only more questions to ask. Chief among them, where in the world is Brian Schaefer and what exactly happened to him in the early morning hours of April Fool's Day, 2006? If anyone has any information about the disappearance of Brian Schaefer, that can be directed to the Central Ohio Crime Stoppers.
at 614-645-8477. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question loaded story to tell you all. If you're liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcast. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash podcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest. If you're not sure what level you'd like to start at, there is a Patreon level and it only costs $1. You can support DAW and the work that I do here for just $1 a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode and have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, all one word. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasshellpodcast at gmail.com or head over to darkasshellpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you back here next week ready to get dark as hell all over again.